Good Thursday, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com. And we are sponsored by Beckerman PR, Beckerman Public Affairs, building market leadership and reputation through strategic communications. Tell your story with Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com. we got a lot going on, as always, and uh, some of it is a little bit comical, you know, vis-a-vis uh, Hillary emails, if you will. Then there's, of course, the ongoing Republican presidential primary, or pre-primary, as it were. And let's not forget the Israeli elections coming up March 17th. So we got a big show coming up. But additionally, you should not forget, given those elections, there is a special election. In fact, there are two. But there's one special election coming up for Congress. That would be on May 5th. That's after Passover for all you people out there who you know can't think of anything before Passover. After Passover, and we have the Republican candidate, Dan Donovan, the current district attorney of Richmond County. That's another word for Staten Island. And this district is not just Staten Island, Staten Island and a sliver of Brooklyn. So while it's not amongst the most Jewish districts in New York City, it has quite a bit of Jews in it. And certainly this race would be of interest to many of our listeners out there in New York City and beyond. Of course, it's a key congressional race. So Dan Donovan, Staten Island DA, Republican candidate and conservative, I think independents as well, is running against Vincent Gentili, a current city councilman, former state senator from Brooklyn. And that's very mindful of this race because Brooklyn, Staten Island, there is a little bit of a divide. Dan, welcome to Spin Class. Thanks for joining us. Michael, thank you for having me. You're very kind. Okay, so first and foremost, give the audience out there a little bit of an idea who you are. Uh, you've been district attorney uh, for quite a few years. In fact, you've had a very successful run as district attorney. You've gained some fame, uh, and Staten Island has as well. I don't know, fame or infamy, not for you, I say, but uh, in the Eric Garner case, and a lot of people might come to mind, who is Dan Donovan? Why is Dan Donovan running for Congress? Well, thank you for the opportunity to be on the show, Michael. And, uh, you know, basically I've been the district attorney for now. I'm in my 12th year. And we have helped make Staten Island. The FBI rates cities and communities. They've rated Staten Island to be the safest community and the safest big city in America. And that wasn't true 12 years ago. So we were very fortunate to do some great work for the people of Staten Island. I've never gotten a chance and an opportunity to represent the people in southern Brooklyn that is included in the congressional district. So I... I'm trying to introduce myself to the folks there and ask them to let me do for them what I've done for the people of Staten Island. Uh, prior to that, Michael, I was Deputy Borough President of Staten Island, and we did some great things like closing the landfill um, and building new schools. So we've had, I've had a wonderful career of public service, and I started off actually, Michael, working for the great Mr. Robert Morgenthau in the Manhattan DA's office. I worked for him for eight years, and uh, I think uh, he's been very proud of what some of his alumni have done, and I'd like to include myself in that. So you're taking it to a whole new level, essentially going to Washington, and people are not so high on Washington these days. Uh, it's Washington, what comes to mind, you think of dysfunction, gridlock, Congress that can't get anything done, sh- government shutdown, overspending, if you will. Why leave the cozy confines of a great run that you're having as Staten Island DA, as you said, 12 years, and want to go to Washington? What is it that you are going to be able to accomplish uh, aside from being the only, potentially, potentially the only Republican in the New York City delegation, what is it that I you're going to accomplish there? Yeah, I was going to say, Michael, that's what you just mentioned is very, very important. 
there's no Republicans in the New York City delegation right now. Yet the Republicans control the House of Representatives and they control the Senate. It's a great opportunity if the people of the 11th Congressional District elect the Republicans. They elect me. We'll have an opportunity to do things that we haven't had an opportunity to do in a real, real long time, bring resources back not only to the congressional district but back to the city and the region. Uh, yeah, people have a bad sense of what happens in Washington. And I've been saying all along, Michael, uh, you know, sometimes politics gets in the way of good governing. That is never the way I have uh, conducted myself in public office. Yesterday I did an interview where I said to the reporter, I bet you if you asked, uh, people in Staten Island, what party does Dan Donovan belong to? Uh, they wouldn't be able to tell you. I don't think people know that I'm a registered Republican running on a Republican line. We have to introduce that to people. I've been working with Democratic mayors, uh, Democratic governors, and we've been able to get things done in Staten Island. I want to do that to the congressional district, and I think it's essential. When you look at what just happened, Michael, uh, with the DHS funding, the Department of Homeland Security, I'm not even in Washington yet. And I supported the speaker when 170 of my Republican colleagues wanted to let the Department of Homeland Security go unfunded. I supported the speaker. That is so essential to an area like ours where over 3,000 people died on September 11th. So what the people of the 11th Congressional District will be doing if they send me to Congress, uh, send somebody down there who knows that he'll be a member of the House of Representatives. And I was sent there down to Washington to represent the people of the 11th District regardless of what the party has to say. So let's talk about the dynamics of the race, okay? And I mm -hmm. want to put it in context, of course. We can't go without ignoring your, prede your predecessor if you are to win uh, as, and had to resign his seat because uh, he was uh, convicted or pled guilty to, uh, to uh, federal uh, uh, tax evasion. Uh, the, his predecessor... Uh, was uh, very briefly a uh, a Democrat who held office briefly, uh, Mike McMahon, former city councilman, who was then defeated. But his predecessor before that, the Republican, was Vito Fusella, who also left office in, I'll, we'll just say, I don't want to say disgrace, but a, a a cloud. Let's just say that there was uh, something about it. And the perception, of course, is that this is a Republican seat. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to give you the, you know, some people might say, is there something about Republicans holding the seat over the last couple of years, uh, something in the water, if you will? Uh, talk a little uh, bit about that. Yeah, I think people just look at it. I, I say people should judge a candidate, decide who they're going to vote on, based on their record in public office. And if people look at my record in public office, it's unblemished. I've been, uh, between being chief of staff to the borough president, being deputy borough president, and being district attorney, I've served the people of Staten Island for over 20 years. If you include my eight years with Mr. Mullins, that's 28 years of public service without a blemish. So I think people, and particularly in our district, Michael, people uh, cross party lines, uh, there's not enough Republicans to get me elected. I got 70% of the vote in my last election. Uh, that, there's not enough Republicans to get me 70% of the vote. So I think a candidacy like my own, uh, where I am a public servant, not a politician, where I put the people's interests before my own political ambitions, uh, I think uh, it just shows that the people recognize that, and I think they vote for the person rather than voting for a party. Well, certainly, the I think the the interesting thing about the district, of course, is that it's actually majority Democrat as far as enrollment is concerned. Uh, everybody, the perception is it's Republican because Republicans held the seat uh, for so long. You had Guy Molinari and Susan Molinari uh, it, and and them. 
uh, holding holding the seat. So and and Vito Fasella. So you had Republicans for a long time, but there actually are a lot of Democrats. So I think what you're saying is very important. Uh, but there was also that Staten Island Brooklyn divide, and the interesting thing is they could not find a candidate from Staten Island, a Democratic candidate, to run against you. Uh, do you want to maybe expound upon that as far as the divide then within the mm-hmm. district? You're absolutely right about the voter registration, Michael. On Staten Island alone, the voter registration about five Democrats to three Republicans. Uh, but that just shows that I can attract uh, Democratic votes, independent votes, conservative votes, and Republican votes. Uh, the district, uh, the divide there, and it's the difficulty I think they had with finding a candidate to run against me from Staten Island is, uh, you know, back when they were trying to coax some people to run, uh, they, DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, uh, did a poll putting me head to head against some Democrats, and I beat, uh, every one of them by 20 points. So I think, uh, it scared some folks from running, or they didn't think maybe this is the proper time to run. And, uh, so then, uh, there were some candidates from Brooklyn who surfaced, and eventually one surfaced to be the nominee. But I think, uh, again, going back to, uh, why voters would be attracted to someone like me, uh, getting 70% of the vote my last election, 68% of the election before that, just goes to show you that the people are voting for a person, not someone of a particular party. They want good service for their tax dollars. They want somebody who has similar philosophies as that they do, and they want somebody going down to Washington and voting in their interests. So before we get into any specific issues, uh, I'd like to just address it or give you a moment to address the, the Eric Garner case because that's something that certainly – it doesn't loom over the race. That would probably be the wrong way to look at it. But it's certainly a factor in where Dan Donovan came into most people's consciousness. You did you did run for attorney general, state attorney general uh, already, so I think a lot of people know who you are. But I think most recently a lot of people outside the district or outside Staten Island – probably are look, are associating your name with the Eric Garner case and the lack of an indictment in that uh, by a grand jury. So just maybe uh, take a moment to talk about that. Yeah, certainly. Uh, it, it's certainly on everyone's radar screen. I mean, uh, most people saw a videotape of, of a man dying in police custody, and uh, I was responsible, my office was responsible for investigating the death into Mr. Garner and to presenting evidence in that matter to a Staten Island grand jury. That jury sat for nine weeks, and uh, they heard uh, 50 witnesses or 60 pieces of evidence, which included four videotapes. And at the conclusion of that presentation, that investigation, the grand jury declined to hold anyone criminally responsible for Mr. Garner's death. Um, I think there was a perception or an expectation from some people that the grand jury would vote otherwise. I think there was a misconception that it, the role of a district attorney in a grand jury proceeding, they don't make movies or television shows at a grand jury proceedings, Michael. They make them out of big trials where lawyers stand up and argue before jurors and tell them why one witness is credible and why one's not and how they should conclude and what they should vote on and how they should vote. Uh, that's not what happens in a grand jury. In a grand jury, an impartial presentation is made to 23 citizens, and there's no arguments. We don't tell jurors how to interpret the evidence. We don't tell them what their conclusions should be. We don't tell them who they should believe or who they shouldn't believe. We present the evidence, and the grand jury decides. See, our forefathers, Michael, were so smart. They didn't want the powerful hand of government accusing their own citizens 
They wanted citizens accusing other citizens and sitting in judgment of others. And that's what the grand jury procedure is all about. It's been in place over 200 years. And there's some people who think in this case it worked. There's some people in this case that think it didn't work. What I have asked everyone, even those who disagree, you could disagree with the grand jury's decision, but you ought to respect it. It's our law, and those people fulfill their civic duty, and they are the only people in the entire world who heard all of the evidence, saw all of the exhibits, and they're the only ones that deliberated, and they're the only ones that understand why they came to their conclusion. So you went down last week to, to Washington for a couple of days, and one of the things that you did is you attended the APAC policy conference in, uh, in Washington. Uh, you also were, were made some statements critical of the president on the Iran deal. So particularly that's of very heightened interest to our audience, uh, particularly these days. Talk for a second about uh, going to APAC and how you feel uh, on the Israel issue or the Iran issue. They're not the same. Uh, I hate to say it like that, but uh, give us an idea of your background and how you would approach foreign policy as a congressman. Well, this is an incredibly important time, and I know, Michael, every time somebody's running, this is a great opportunity in history every time someone's running. But this particularly, I mean, Iran is a threat not only to Israel. Iran is a threat to the Arab nations in the region, they're a threat to the United States. They're a threat to the world. Um, and I disagree with the way the president is approaching this. He thinks that we could do this through more negotiations, and he thinks that Iran will cooperate by uh, lifting sanctions against them. I was fortunate enough not to be in the congressional chamber, but I was fortunate enough to be on Capitol Hill when the prime minister of Israel gave his speech to Congress uh, last week and agreed with many of the things that he was saying, that uh, this is a world threat, and without any agreement with them dismantling their nuclear facilities, without any agreement of letting inspectors to go in to observe and to determine how far, how advanced Iran is in obtaining a nuclear weapon, nothing else is going to work. I think right now, and I, it's so horrible that Israel does not feel the love from the United States. Uh, they are our greatest ally in the Middle East. And uh, right now we have our enemies testing us, and we have our allies, our friends, questioning us. And I think uh, we have to change direction on what we're to do as a nation, as what we're to do with our partner Israel, and what we're to do with our other partners in the Middle East to make sure that Iran does not get a nuclear weapon. Okay, we're talking with Dan Donovan, the Republican candidate for Congress in the 11th Congressional District, encompassing the entirety of Staten Island and parts of Brooklyn, uh, all the way over to Ocean Parkway. Uh, and just to have time for, I think, one or two more questions, what is the issue, Dan, that you would want to tackle when you get to Congress? Okay, so yes, you go to Congress as a freshman, but uh, is there something going on out there, aside from constituent service and that you've been uh, so effective in, obviously, uh, in, in Staten Island itself. But what is the issue that you see right now as being something that you can accomplish over your term uh, that, will, uh, that will, the special term and then beyond? Well, I think certainly, as I said before, about our national security and homeland security. Uh, the district I want to represent lost over 300 people on September 11, 2001. While the debate was going on whether we should fund the Department of Homeland Security, the 11th Congressional District of New York 
did not have a representative down there uh, debating and persuading others that this was not only a New York interest but a national interest. Um, you know, we, we suffer, like many communities, still from Hurricane Sandy and the devastation of that. My belief, my goal is with governments, we should do for you people what they can't do for themselves. We should, we should pick up your garbage. We should deliver your mail, and we should certainly come to the aid of our citizens after a disaster. Apparently, we have failed at that. My understanding from the representatives down in Louisiana is there's still people displaced 10 years after Hurricane Katrina. And certainly in parts of Brooklyn and in parts of Staten Island, two and a half years after Superstorm Sandy, there are still people waiting for their government to come to their aid. So that's going to be a priority of mine, too. And, Michael, I mean, just about our country, we have hardworking, middle-class people who keep hearing about tax increases and government increase in spending. And you have people with two incomes that are living week-to-week, paycheck-to-paycheck, two good paychecks, civil servants, and a nurse and a firefighter, a police officer and a teacher married, and they don't know how they're going to send their kids to school. They don't know how to make their mortgage, if they're going to make their mortgage payments. Their government has to come to their aid. That's a disaster that we should be helping people with. Okay, last question for you is, as within the Republican caucus, if you are elected, the Northeast Republican, yes, we have uh, a couple congressmen, but from downstate it would be, uh, Republican congressman in New York, but there's uh, you, Peter King, uh, Lee Zeldin. But what used to be known as the Northeast Republican is uh, a little bit of endangered species in in Congress, and they've lost a lot of the more moderate uh, Republicans who, as you said, are willing to n- not shut down the Department of Homeland Security. So how would you, within the caucus, uh, I, I, I guess the question is to exert yourself and exert uh, pressure being a small piece where the Western and Southern Republicans are far more ascendant or more conservative Republicans are far more ascendant? Yeah, you know, we have right now, we have some great people, like you said, Lee Zeldin, Pete King, uh, that are holding, holding the fort down. I think two of the people more anxious for me to get down, other than myself, are both Lee and Pete for two different reasons. Pete's down there fighting the fight. And, and needs, needs some assistance, needs a partner down there. Lee told me that he is the most junior member of Congress, and he's hoping that as soon as I'm elected, I get the pin that has the most junior number on the back of it, so he moves up a space. But, uh, yeah, you, you know what? We have many common, uh, interests as, as a group in the Northeast. But I'll tell you what, we're losing, uh, so many citizens to other parts of our country. When a former boss of mine, you mentioned it before, Guy Molinari, was in Congress, there was 41 members uh, of the House in New York State. We're down to 27 now, and that's because our population, our people are fleeing. This is not an attractive place for a lot of people to live anymore. Nobody's coming here, and yet people are leaving. So I think uh, since there's less of us here, it gives those of us that are here a stronger voice. So I plan on joining my friend Lee and my friend Peter uh, in Washington to represent the people, as I said, in the district, in the city, and in the region. And I think uh, adding my voice is certainly going to help in their efforts. Okay, as a final thought, I just wanted to, meant to ask this. Special elections are notorious for extraordinarily low turnout. And people don't, they, they, they don't know it's not their regular election. They're not thinking about elections on May 5th. Uh, what is it? What is your message to motivate people about how important it is to vote, no matter who they vote for? 
Well, I think some of the things we spoke about uh, should motivate people that during a time when such an incredible thing like Department of Homeland Security funding was being debated, we didn't have anybody there. It's important to come out to vote. I mean, you know, a handful of people in a small county in Florida in 2000 elected the leader of the free world. Uh, so I think if people don't realize how important it is, but it's our job to do that, Michael. You know, we have to get people to come out of vote. We have to remind them that it's May 5th. In the last mayoral election in New York City, 17% of the people voted in November. So much more difficult to get people to come out to vote when they're not used to voting in May. We're going to target our voters. We think we know who the prime and super prime voters are in New York and uh, in the district. And we're going to ask them to come out. We know they're going to come out. We're going to ask them to vote for us. We're going to try to expand it base and try to tell people how important it is to have a, a voice down in Washington. And I am the proper voice for that. Try to expand that base and get more and more people to come out. It's a difficult job, Michael, but I think it's just a reflection on how people believe or think about their public officials, and we've got to change that image. Okay, Dan Donovan, the current district attorney of Richmond County, that's uh, Staten Island, running in the 11th Congressional District, special election coming up on May 5th, and that's uh, it's certainly a race a race to watch. Everybody will be actually be looking at that nationally, uh, special election, get that type of attention. as a uh, and This is a swing district, so uh, good luck to you, Dan, and we hope to hear great things from you as you go along. Michael, thank you so much for having me on the show. This is Spin Class, and we're going to switch gears, as we do very frequently on the show. We're going to dive back in to the controversy, the electoral controversy, around the little village in Sullivan County, known as Bloomingburg, New York, where a nascent Hasidic community has moved in over the last year or so and has encountered all kinds of roadblocks from government, uh, government on the local level, uh, meaning the village level, the town level, and now on the county level with uh, Hasidic voters at being canceled, having their voter registrations canceled or being denied the opportunity to register to vote. Uh, full disclosure, as I like to do, I am involved in this case, uh, but that should not prevent me talking about it. So I want to welcome to the show Steve Engel, who's a partner at Deckert and has filed on behalf of, I think at this point, 27, 29, 30 Hasidic Jewish voters who are having their rights violated or alleged, allegedly violated by the Sullivan County Board of Elections, has filed a class action lawsuit on their behalf that was filed in federal court. Steve, welcome to Spin Class. Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me. Okay. So Bloomingburg has been on the consciousness of our listenership a little bit because I've talked about it. It's been written about in some of the Jewish media. It's been primarily looked at as, you know, another symptom of the conflict between Hasidic Jews and their neighbors in the Hudson Valley. So you have it Rockland County, Orange County, now Sullivan County, and just an extension of that. What makes the case that you have made your file different from other things that have been going on? What makes this so egregious? What makes the necessity on the part of the voters to file a federal civil rights lawsuit? Sure. Well, I can't claim to be an expert in all of the disputes that have been going on in the Hudson Valley, but I think what you know what differentiates 
the cases here is the way in which local officials have been directly involved, uh, as we allege uh, in our various complaints, in discrimination uh, against the Hasidic Jewish community there. And in other words, this isn't simply a matter of demographic conflict where Hasidic Jews are moving to areas and they have new neighbors and there's uh, you know, a fight through the political process. What, what we've had here uh, is situations in which local government officials uh, are going after uh, Hasidic Jews and projects associated with Hasidic Jews, and, and most recently in the lawsuit that we've just filed, as uh, the Sullivan County Board of Elections has essentially tried to cancel uh, the votes and the voter registrations of virtually the entire Hasidic Jewish population of Bloomingburg. And, and so uh, we have a situation in which uh, one the, the Board of Elections sent out notices to 160 people telling them that it believed that their voter registrations, these are folks who had registered to vote in accordance with uh, New York state law, and, and uh, that they've told them that they're going to cancel their those votes unless they come back uh, and present evidence to prove that they live there, uh, which is an extraordinary imposition on you know what I think is the most fundamental uh, right that we have, which is the right to vote. So is that the crux of the issue, essentially turning the burden of proof on its head that a voter should not have to prove. I mean, in the end, we want we all want fair elections, right? Just to play devil's advocate here, we all want fair elections. We all want elections, but we want people who are actually legitimate to be participating in elections. Uh, we all, we also at the same time don't want people who to not have the right to vote. I think that that I think that's important, and that's obviously a, a national debate out there about it. But what you what you're saying or what I'm getting is that the burden of proof really should be on the board of elections to prove that somebody doesn't live somewhere as opposed to somebody having to prove that they do live somewhere but in the end i get i guess you know what is the balance there between the public uh the public uh, imperative of trying to have fair elections but also uh, not violating the rights of individuals sure well well i think that uh just take, taking your question on, on the front end, flipping the burden of proof really is a pretty, a pretty significant uh, aspect to this. I mean, right now, throughout this country, there's been a lot of lit- voting rights litigation about whether local boards can require people to pre- present photo identifications uh, at the polls to confirm that they are, in fact, the person who is on the roll. Uh, and a number of federal courts have said that's an unconstitutional uh, burden on the right to vote, frankly. Uh, even though, just you know, from the other point of view, people said, "Gee, it's common sense. If if you don't, uh, uh, if if it's if it's not you, there's no, there's no harm in requiring you to show a driver's license." But but what we have here is a very different situation than you know what what I think even the challenges would think is a a rel- is a relatively minimal burden with a photo identification. You're talking about telling people that they need to ca- that they need to present evidence. Uh, that they need to come up to the Board of Elections for hearings and, and essentially, you know, essentially testimony, pro- making statements to a government actor under uh, under false statement laws to, to show that they're there, which, you know, for the, most of the people, uh, we get up, we go to work, we, we, we spend time with our families, uh, and, you know, it's quite an imposition requiring per- people to have to fight for their right to vote. And if, frankly, uh, we had these processes with an African American community, a Hispanic American community, a, a poor community. Uh, I think people would be up in arms, and we'd be on the front pages of the New York Times if folks were being required to prove uh, and burdened with their right to vote. But, uh, but th- that actually is not even the end of the process because we didn't we didn't bring this lawsuit 
after the Board of Elections did what, what you which suggest was flipping the burden of proof here. In fact, uh, our clients uh, and other Hasidic Jewish voters in Bloomingburg went in and presented evidence to the Board of Elections demonstrating that they had to live there. I don't think they should have been required to do that. I think that was an improper burden on their right to vote. But they even went there and they fought for it. They didn't just run to court. Uh, and even though they did that, uh, dozens of voters, and in particular the 27 clients on, on whose behalf uh, I have brought this lawsuit, were deprived of the right to vote, even though in some cases uh, several of them had appeared in front of the Board of Elections, a number of them had – they all had provided affidavits swearing, uh, you know, all or nearly all, that, that they live in Bloomingburg. Uh, some of them had provided driver's license with a Bloomingburg address to attest that they were there. And even in some cases the sheriff, the county sheriff – at the request of the board elections, had visited these folks' house, had spoken with these people, and said, you know, I, I see a house here. I see people living here. These people live in Bloomingburg. So despite all of this evidence, the board of elections ultimately canceled 156 of the 184 uh, registrations, or at least uh, sought to cancel them. Uh, and that's why uh, the, my 27 clients, on behalf of themselves and other Hasidic Jews similarly situated, have brought a lawsuit against the Board of Elections. Well, we're, we're talking with Steve Engel here on Spin Class and a very serious issue, and I would encourage people out there to go ahead and read this uh, lawsuit because it's extraordinary in 2015 that this, that this should happen, that an entire group of voters should essentially be thrown off the rolls uh, despite producing all kinds of evidence that may or, or that may not be appropriately needed. Uh, but let's just talk for a second about some of the specific voters you mentioned. Okay, you have uh, somebody, if you read the complaint, somebody came, they not only they voted in the general election, they voted in a primary election. They voted in village elections. They voted in a referendum. They have a driver's license. They have a lease. They have a uh, they they came in person to the board of elections, and still, even though even with all that, they still canceled them. What was the reason that the board of elections gave for canceling this kind this type of person? So, so what's even more crazy about this is that when the Board of Elections issued its decision, its determination canceling these registrations, it didn't provide any reasons uh, for, for why it ruled the way it did. It actually just produced a whole list of voters, and it had check marks as to whether the registrations would be canceled or not canceled. So there was no... Uh, there was no even statement of reasons. Nothing we could tell this person you, you mentioned, or people. You know, there's multiple people who who would fit that criteria, I believe. Uh, no, no one told them. Gee, this is why we believe that you, even though you woke up this morning in Bloomingburg, even though you went to sleep this morning in Bloomingburg, and even though you're registered to vote there, we're not going to let you vote. There's just no statement at all uh, of what the reasons were. Which, which again, that's a violation both of federal law and also state election laws. So what happens now? Uh, there's a village election coming up on Wednesday. What what is the what happens vis-a-vis your case or vis-a-vis the voters? I mean, what what where do we go from here? So, How does this get to some kind of adjudication? Sure. So helpfully, uh, at the at the state level, uh, my clients uh, went into state court uh, just uh, 
well, I lose track of the days, but yesterday or two days ago. Uh, and in, in fact, uh, the state judge uh, and the Board of Elections and, and counsel there uh, determined that uh, these can- the canceling of these registrations would be stayed pending next week's election in the village of Bloomingburg. Bloomingburg holds, holds elections in March. Uh, and so therefore, uh, my clients will be able to vote uh, in this upcoming election, although the issue is not resolved. The issue both in state court and federal court uh, will remain kind of up there, and the lawfulness of what the Board of Ed- uh, Elections have done will be contested. Uh, and then in federal court, um, you know, we're going to move forward because not only have my clients been injured by what's happened so far, but uh, we have real concerns that they'll be injured again and that we're going to have to fight for the right to vote in each and every election here as people seek to, ca- to cancel uh, their registrations. And so uh, we're going to seek, uh, you know, a, a uh, an order from a federal judge confirming that these people are entitled to vote and that they cannot be deprived uh, of that fundamental right uh, on grounds of religious discrimination. Okay, let's just get into some of the background here. And all this centers around a development that is uh, that is may or may not be occupied uh, because nobody's in there yet, but maybe it may not be occupied by Hasidic Jews. And there is this general context of the idea that, well, it, it, people don't want in certain parts of, uh, of of the Hudson Valley, as I alluded to, they don't want uh, they don't want the Hasidic Jews as neighbors because uh, for whatever reason, overgrowth, schools, what, what, pick pick your reason. Now, there's also a parallel uh, civil rights lawsuit that you filed back in September on this issue. So, are these running in concert with each other? Or are they totally separate? How how do how do they come into context with each other? And just comment for a second on that. Whole idea. I mean, I find it repugnant that somebody would be willing to say these kinds of things. We don't want a Hasidic Jewish neighbor because they wouldn't say that about other people. But you know, unfortunately, that's the times in which we live. Yeah. Yeah. No. Well, so so we uh, separate from this lawsuit, but obviously related. Back in September, we filed uh, a broader civil rights lawsuit uh, on behalf of uh, some Hasidic Jews, on behalf of a religious school, uh, and on behalf of the development. Uh, that, that the Chestnut Ridge development, uh, seeking to challenge uh, what we believe to be unlawful and discriminatory acts uh, by the village and the town, uh, where uh, motivated by you know anti-Hasidic sentiment, these folks uh, have tried to obstruct uh, the Chestnut Ridge development. They've tried to prevent the the opening of a mikvah and the opening of a religious school uh, for what we believe to be unlawful and uh, discriminatory reasons. And so, you know, this is unfortunately the environment that you know that we see in in Bloomingburg and and in the area. And you know, we think that there is a direct line between the actions in this uh, in the civil rights lawsuit that we filed uh, and uh, you know to the Sullivan County Board of Election decisions and and the voting rights action. So we think that they are related. Uh, but you know, but both actions uh, have different plaintiffs, and they'll they'll be proceeding separately. Uh, and we're moving forward that civil rights lawsuit. We're in uh, discovery has began, and you know, we're going to seek to you know get resolution for our, you know and relief for our clients there as well. Well, if you're a public official, I'm not asking you to guess, but obviously you're on the other side, so you got to have some understanding of your adversary here. What would, what is the, uh, probably the wrong question to ask you, but you're probably, 
uh, somebody listening to this is probably thinking, okay, what are they thinking exactly? What is a, uh, a somebody, a commissioner of the Board of Elections thinking in going ahead and taking some of the voters that you there with with all the abundance of evidence that they've been presenting as far as the, uh, as far as living in the village of Bloomingburg and still going ahead and canceling them? What you know? What is the how, how does somebody justify that, if at all? Yeah. So, so look, I, I don't want to speak for them, so to speak. Uh, and uh, I tell you, I can't, uh, you know, I don't understand. I mean, you know, they, they obviously are going into this with the mindset that they need to make sure that there are appropriately registered voters uh, on the rolls. But for someone to look at the evidence that our clients have put forward, uh, for someone to look at the sheriff's, you know, the sheriff's findings and the sheriff's report, and then to go ahead and cancel these registrations, uh, I just can't explain it, frankly. Uh, we'll have to, you know. So we'll, we'll see if, if there is an explanation. Uh, we'll see what they say in court. Okay. And in your research out there, have you seen similar types of cases with other minorities or ethnic minorities suffering the same type of, uh, of issues? In, not, not in past. I'm saying not in the 1950s yeah. in the South. I'm talking about now, today, in 2015. Sure. No, I, uh, I, I, in, to, my, to my knowledge, uh, this, this kind of concerted action – to go against the population of people and to uh, cancel their voter registration is something that I've never seen in New York, and frankly, I've never heard about anywhere else. Uh, and so, uh, this is pretty extraordinary. We think pretty blatant, uh, you know. And we look forward to prosecuting this action in federal court. How soon? How quickly? I guess do cases like this get adjudicated? I, I think you know these types of cases sometimes have a tendency to go on for years. Is that what we're looking at here? Well, you know, it's hard to say. Uh, you know, certainly we've we've uh, happily uh, through litigation, our clients' uh, right to vote has been vindicated in the upcoming election this week, and uh, we'll try to press this case forward as soon as we can. But uh, you know, we've uh, we've just begun the the uh, the case, and so it's difficult to see how long this will this will go. Okay, Steve Engel, a partner at Deckard LLP, who is or a PLLP, I, I, I forget. They, they, <laughs> so hopefully I get that right so that there's no type of uh, you know legal liability on my part, uh, who has now filed a lawsuit on behalf of 27 Hasidic Jewish voters. Actually, just a question about that quickly, if we have time, is it's a class action lawsuit. Just explain to the audience what that means versus a regular lawsuit. Sure. Well, well we, have, we, have brought, we have 27 folks who have, who have brought this lawsuit, but they're also seeking to vindicate not only their rights, but the rights of other Hasidic Jews in Bloomingburg, whose votes and whose reg- and registrations may be challenged in the future. So uh, we hope to get a, uh, a strong order that would protect the entire community uh, in addition to the 27 folks who have, who have actually filed the lawsuit. Okay, and this would only be for voters in the village of Bloomingburg as opposed to elsewhere in Sullivan County or Orange County, for example. Uh, that, that's the, the current lawsuit is, is brought on behalf of the folks who are being targeted in Bloomingburg. Uh, you know, if the county acts more broadly against the community, uh, you know, we can always seek to amend. But right now, this is a Bloomingburg issue uh, motivated by what's been going on in that community. Okay, Steve Engel, the attorney for the uh, Hasidic Jewish Voters in Bloomingburg, New York, uh, seeking to vindicate and uh, uh, ensure their right to vote going forward. Thanks for alerting the public and helping us with this uh, very important issue. Sure. Thank you, Michael. This is Spin Class, and we're talking politics. This past Sunday, I had the pleasure of attending a forum on the future of the Jewish vote, 2015 into 2016. A couple speakers there, uh, some assemblymen, uh, Phil Goldfeder, Todd Kaminsky, Kevin Curran, as well as Congressman Lee Zeldin, the only Republican Jew in Congress. 
and Senator Dean Skelos. And I also took aside for a couple minutes my old friends Hank Shaikoff and Jeff Wiesenfeld, as well as Rabbi Friedman from Rambam. We talked about activism. We talked about politics. We talked about things on campus, all kinds of different issues. So have a listen. We're here with Hank Scheinkoff, a longtime political strategist, worked for uh, the Clintons, Michael Bloomberg, and people across the aisle, up and down the aisle, up and down the food chain of politics throughout the world. Hank, thanks for joining us here at this uh, event, the Future of the Jewish Vote, a bipartisan grassroots forum. One of the topics you're going to talk about is Jews and the Democrats, and I think that's something that's particularly interesting today, given the that Israel and the elected government of the United States, the elected government of Israel, seem to be at odds on certain things. Uh, are there fissures in the Jewish-democratic relationship right now? Well, you have to define what a fissure is, and you have to define the Jewish, demo- you have to define the Jewish demographic. If you look at the Pew study, the, uh, you can make a, a reasonable analysis and say the following, that the 70% or so that who identify not as Jews but as unaffiliated, i.e., they could be anything in the, in the culture of uh, secular pluralism, um, that those folks are going to remain with Democrats, and those of us who are observant or engaged are likely not to. It's a 70-30 split. You saw it in the polling data about Netanyahu post the speech and before the speech, and that's the future. It's uh, the Erev Rav from the, from the Chumash all over again, and that's what we're going to be facing. Well, it sounds like in a little bit of an ominous analysis. Perhaps it is, you know, I think the data does you know, certainly point in that direction. But is there, we've always had this idea that the Israel relationship was a bipartisan relationship. That was kind of sacrosanct. And everybody has kind of referred to that. In fact, members of the Obama administration have gone on TV over and over and say, Israel's bipartisan issue. Let's not make it a partisan issue. So if we have that divide within the Jewish community uh, on, on these issues, does that then perhaps become Israel now becomes a partisan issue? Israel becomes a partisan and a religious issue. If you look at the data about Catholic and Christian attitudes toward Netanyahu in the speech, immediately post the speech, the data is pretty clear. What it tells you is that people who care about those issues, i.e. Israel, attacks uh, on Christians in the Middle East, uh, uh, genocide of Christian communities who are very worried about the future of Christianity in the Middle East are very much with the Jewish community who, who support Israel. And those who don't care about those issues are not with the Jewish community that supports Israel. Israel is more than a bipartisan issue. Is, Israel has become a religious issue. And it started to work that way in the, probably in the late, in the early 80s, maybe before that, with the rise of the Christian right and the definition of new conservatism. So we are in a very tenuous position, and it's remindful to me, um, putting on my scholarly hat for a second, of a very important book written years ago by a, by a social historian at the Columbia University who called, the book was entitled The Fatal Embrace. And what Jews have done is they've embraced the government of the United States rather than stood up on their own two feet and defended their interests in a way that makes sense. They've always looked for Big Daddy any place in the world they've settled, and the truth is there is no Big Daddy. No one's going to protect us but ourselves. What does that say then about Democrats who are, many Democrats who are very staunchly and strongly pro-Israel? Does that recede? Does that, that support, underlying support in the Democratic Party recede over time? The Democrats have largely lost to their entire issue base, and they haven't had a really great new idea. And that's not to say the Republicans are such geniuses, but Democrats really haven't had a new great idea since, since Social Security. The fact, the facts are that both parties are seeking, uh, issues in which to operate, but mostly what they're seeking is money in which to uh, to get reelected. And the Jewish problem is that our money has been replaced by Wall Street, 
by non-Jewish money, by interests that are not in favor of us, by Arab money, which has increased exponentially over the last 10 years. And the model we've used to gain access and power, that certainly influence whether we have any power is questionable, is depleting. The other problem is a more significant one over time. The income and wealth gap has increased exponentially between Jews and others. African Americans on the lower end of the scale, unfortunately, um, in movement into the middle class, and people can talk about reasons why all day long, but there will be, and there is starting to be, a real battle between the have-not Jews and the have-not others. And who wins that battle in resources is is very difficult to calculate over time. We are at a moment of uh, great import in the history of the Jewish people in this country. And as to whether we remain Democrats or not, is not an issue. Those who believe in secular pluralism as a religion as opposed to Judaism are much more likely to remain as Democrats. It's quite simple, not that complicated in that way. But the potential for conflict over social service dollars between, and particularly in this part of the country, we have large portions of the Jewish community that are, that are certainly needy, um, have more religious people versus the non-religious people in the Jewish community is step one and then versus everybody else is step two. That's a serious problem. Okay, just a political strategist hat for a second. Sure. Israeli election coming up March 17th. Everybody, you know, we had the speech. Now we're post-speech. Now to the nitty-gritty of the election. What happens? If you read Yudhiyah Dachanot on Friday afternoons, you get a very different view about the world. Um, if you had to bet today uh, based upon the uh, – l- let's do it this way. When you take your best shot on the issue that matters and you lose your best shot or you don't score a bullseye, you get into trouble in elections, having worked on a lot of them all over the world. Sixteen foreign countries work on this. What I can tell you very simply is that the real issue in Israel was never security. Israelis are pretty good about being able to take care of themselves. In the United States, we worry about security. Inside of Israel, they're worried about the cost of bread, the cost of milk, the cost of gas, the cost of the inability of native Israeli settlers to get um, to buy apartments for their children and their families. Those are going to take over the discussion because by going to the United States and discussing Iran, um, Bibi Netanyahu shot his best shot, and it did not land the way he would have liked it in, at home. Is he going to win? I think it's going to be tough. Tough for him to win. Okay. Well, there obviously there are two questions in Israel, the win and the whether you can actually form a government. I think that's, there's two pieces of form, that. Forming a government will be a problem. Bibi winning, not so sure. Exactly. Okay. Hank Scheinkoff, thanks for joining us here in this special edition of Spin Class. Welcome back to the special edition of Spin Class at the Future of the Jewish Vote, a bipartisan grassroots forum. And um, talking to my old friend, not old friend, but a longtime friend, I should say, uh, Jeffrey Weisenfeld, a activist as well, a government official and principal at Alliance Bernstein Asset Management, and a real activist and catalyst for many of the many important things in the Jewish community, always out there in the forefront. Uh, Jeff, welcome. Thanks. Thanks, Michael. Thanks very much. So tell us a little bit about the forum. I think you're co-hosting or co-forming or co-formationing of this uh, of this forum. Tell us a little bit what you're trying to accomplish here this morning. Well, my own my own uh, personal view is that uh, I think the Jews need a, a, a different framework in how they look at issues and how they make decisions on the way they vote. Uh, this this uh, almost semi-religious view of party politics that, that many Jews have and uh, the the over-exaggeration, I believe Steve Plout of Haifa University calls it the tikkun olam fetish. It's a situation where Jews get involved in every issue, many of them very good issues, but they really are not prescribed 
to them by Jewish code or Jewish ethics or Jewish law and the way in which they've been led to believe. And I think some of the movements in the Jewish religion have caused us to stray from core values. And I'm not talking about how observant or non-observant a person is, but simply that uh, charity begins at home. And we've been there for everyone else, and now the chips are really down for us. And I wonder who's there for us. So you're going to talk about the mindset of the Jewish community and the Jewish vote, and you've been around politics a long time, certainly working on the inside as a Democrat, I think now a Republican, although not looking at the registration card, but I think uh, your history is you formed a conservative Democratic club, and then you supported Republicans. Yeah, we made a valiant valiant attempt to try to salvage the conservative Democrats. I think it's very sad when you look in terms of party that the people I was associated with, my first campaign was for Senator Henry Scoop Jackson. Okay, I was going to get into that, the the demise, or at least the the requiem for the Scoop Jackson wing. I don't think you'd get a Bill Clinton elected today, let alone Ed Koch or Scoop Jackson or people like that. Uh, The the party has veered very much to the left, and there's this unholy alliance between uh, the leftists and the Islamists, which is really perilous for us. And people have to see this, and we have to speak plainly about it. Uh, I would hope that uh, this forum today will not be like uh, the self-denial in the White House about the realities that face us. Hello. Let's discuss your tenure as a CUNY trustee and campus activism. I think one of the hot-button issues these days is the the issue of... Jews and Israel on campus. And I, I say it Jews because really you've had a situation, you had in UCLA last week, where a Jewish candidate for judicial government was actually asked some, was literally asked whether they could be fair and impartial as a student judge because they were Jewish. So we've kind of veered, in a sense, from the questions about Israel to specific Jewish questions on campus. And you led, uh, you were part of the board of the third largest university system in the country, and there were issues over time with regard to that. Now, I think some would say that some of these issues start on campus, and then they grow, and then they grow, uh, as opposed to necessarily vice versa as being victim, because campus seems to be a place where a lot of these ideas get tested. So tell us a little bit about your concerns there, which have been very valid and borne out uh, over the years. We'll discuss that today as well. That is extremely dangerous for us because the, the universities are the, are the centers where our new generation elites are nurtured, and they come out of there with notions about the world that are very dangerous for us. Uh, yes, I confronted many of these things, and uh, along with Matt Goldstein, uh, while we had two missions, one is we were trying to rejuvenate the city university, bring it back to the standard uh, bearer that it was for uh, lower middle income and uh, low income students in New York City and the opportunity that brought by restoring its standards. The other thing is that we tried to at least provide counterpoint where, as you know, we talk about diversity all the time. There's all kinds of diversity on our campuses. There's ethnic diversity, there's gender diversity, there's sexual orientation diversity, there's age diversity, there's everything. But there's no intellectual diversity. Unless you go to Bob Jones University or, 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 some, or, 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 or YU, you have a, a severe, severe leftist tilt 
again, resulting in an unholy alliance between the leftists and the Islamists, which is really perilous for us. And that's why we, I suggested to Cindy, and, and, and she did so, uh, have the participation of Stand With Us, because I think many in the audience, even those who are pretty active, will be very surprised by the severity of the experience that confronts Jewish students when they come out of these schools if they're not properly prepared in defense of their identity and of the state of Israel. It's really incredible when you read some of these things as to have that go on. It, in a sense, I don't want to call it persecution, but it borders on that. In a, and I think the intellectual diversity, what you're talking about, is it, it carries over to a lot of different issues because liberal, quote-unquote, orthodoxy is, is the norm. Uh, let's change gears for a second and talk straight politics here. Okay, New York State, a tough state for Republicans to do well uh, generally in a statewide basis, although, you know, locally it's a, it, it can be a little bit different depending on how things go. Do the Republican Party have a message for the Northeast and become a little bit of a regional party? And you're a Northeast Republican now or somebody who has, you know, switched over. Does the, does the Republican Party have a message for the Northeast? This is, this is a very good point. Uh, I think that... Uh, the the party does have to make uh, the national party needs to make a bigger effort in New York. Uh, I'll, I'll put it that way. Uh, there are people who want to make that case. Uh, listen, let me be very candid with you. I've seen situations where uh, where I live, for instance, on the North Shore on Great Neck. Uh, you have a very budding Republican registration, and I will tell you that the county party of the Republican Party here in Nassau doesn't make the investment to cultivate and grow that because these people who came from Iran and uh, the those Jews who in the Babylonian synagogue in the, in the various Tehrani synagogues and certainly in the young Israel and certainly in Great Neck Synagogue we have a budding Republican registration and George W. Bush did pretty well against John Kerry when he ran for re-election. They're not making the investment in North Shore. I believe to a large extent they write it off. So before we even get to the National Party, and I, I have issues with how they should... Right, National Party is made up of a lot of local... But uh, when, we're, not, we're not making... I think uh, our, the, my party uh, is not making a sufficient investment in areas that can be further grown uh, for Republican benefit. Who do you like for 2016 and the Republican side? It's really, i got to tell you the truth, it's too soon to say. I remember when I worked for Henry Jackson, who would have believed in that race of the six or seven candidates? Because when you have so many candidates beyond two or three, it's very difficult to know who will emerge. But I remember being astounded that when such a great man as Henry Jackson ran in 76, that we ended up with Jimmy Carter, now the second worst president of this century. Uh, so... I think I have to see how it plays out a little bit. This administration is not even over, and it's already earned uh, a place in history, I say. Yeah, it's earned my praise, yes. It's really, it's, it's earned it, absolutely. Jeff Weisenfeld, Principal at Alliance Bernstein, political activist. Uh, thanks for joining us here. I appreciate your time. Welcome back. We're here from the U.S. Israel Grassroots Forum at, here at Temple Hillel, and I'm here with Rabbi Friedman from Rambam, Possibly one of the most uh, politically active high school on the uh, Jewish scene these days. And Rabbi Friedman, you inculcate your students with a sense of responsibility, I think, that's really unmatched in, this, in a sense that they're out there caring about a lot of the issues of the cloud, a lot of the issues out there. Tell us a little bit about what it is in your approach that has, uh, that has become, I think, unique, but a little bit of a standard bearer amongst yeshiva, yeshiva high schools. 
Well, uh, we view it as part of the educational program. It's not an extracurricular activity. We really feel we are training the Jewish leaders of tomorrow because uh, 10, 10 to 20 years from now, these young men and young ladies in the Shalhevet High School will really be the people that are in the forefront of their community, whether it's in their shuls, their schools, the mikvah, hospitals, or most, more importantly in terms of the bigger picture, Kalal Yisrael, you know, they're going to be the leaders. So it's important to imbue them with the sense of responsibility now and to give them the specific training of how to go out there and be involved actively on many different issues. So talk to us about the training. What, what does a, a young person who's in high school need to do to, in order to be active? And I think that carries over to people as they move on in, in life. How do they become active? I think we, we suffer from, as a community, a lot of people think that they're active, but they don't always have the tools to really, to really be active. I, I think that's an excellent point. Uh, there's a lot, I think first and foremost, there's a lot of complacency out there. And no joke, and everyone has the I, the iPhone, and so I, me, it's really very self-centered. And I think that's one of the problems in the Jewish community at large, uh, especially when there's affluence. People kind of, you know, you know, kind of think that they're entitled to everything. They don't have to go out there and do things. Uh, so it's important to really train kids to go out there and do things. And you know, we have frequent meetings with uh, we have a you know Jewish issues club and committee, and we have meet with them frequently. And we discuss the various issues that are out there, and strategize how to best accomplish you know uh, which issue we think we can get something done on, and how to you know accomplish it in the limited time we have. We still have school, Gemara, Halacha, sure, Biology, absolutely. and Math. Uh, so there's a lot of juggling that goes on. But uh, these are kids that are willing to stay after school and do a lot of planning. And uh, these are kids who are at the forefront. Uh, for example, last week we took 12 kids to the uh, APAC, uh, you know, uh, conference. We could have had 20 to 30 kids, but we limited it. And it was a fantastic experience for the kids. And I think next year we'll have even more kids enrolling. Uh, and they really heard from, you know, they felt empowered. They really felt that they could make a difference. And the feedback we got from members of APEC of, you know, how involved the kids were and how wonderful it was to see them, I think, you know, is to their credit. Um, yeah, there are a, lo- a lot of students. I mean, a really yeah. substantial amount. They invest a lot. And, uh, you know, that's definitely the trend amongst political, uh, you know, conventions these days, investing in young people. Absolutely. They have 3,000 high school and college students there, which is extremely important. So uh, we really have to do whatever we can to try to... Uh, you know, inspire the kids to uh, become the leaders of tomorrow. We re- work very hard on that, and I think, Baruch Hashem, we've had a, a good amount of success with that. Okay, last question for you. I know time is short. How do you pick your battles? How do you know, how do you decide as an educator and as a principal which issues you want to get involved in? Okay, that's a really great question. And I'd say we're probably 90% effective. There are cases we go out there and whether we rally or, you know, lobby and nothing happens. But in most of the times it does happen. Uh, and that's part of the strategy session. We'll, you know, we'll meet for a while. We'll kick around different ideas and we'll analyze does this make sense or not. And, you know, someone once told me, it's one activist once said that if you have a rally and the media doesn't come, you might as well just scream in your own backyard. It doesn't make any difference. So you really have to pick a target and a time it, time it to a point when you know it will be most effective. And, um, you know, it means lining up the media in advance. It means lining up political support in advance, making sure the kids are well aware of the issue. So when the media does come to interview them, we already have kind of a reputation. We call up ABC, CBS, Fox News. You know, they know who we are. And they know the kids are serious about it. They know you're putting on a good event. Right. They know the kids are serious and impassioned. Okay. Rabbi Friedman, Rabbi Zev Friedman from Rambam and Shalhevet. And this is Spin Class, and we close today. We have the Israeli election coming up, St. Patrick's Day, not St. Patrick's Day in Israel, but uh, here in the U.S., March 17th, coming up on Tuesday. And I don't think that this election season is turning out anywhere near 
the way anybody had thought when they brought down the government and called for new elections. Uh, latest polling, and there's no more polling in the five days going up to elections. So today, March 12th being the latest poll, has the Zionist Union, that's uh, Buzi Herzog's uh, party, 24 seats. That's a plus four to their current. Likud at 20 seats. That's plus two to their current because they had a joint list together with uh, Yisrael Beitenu. The joint Arab list at 13, which is a plus two. Yeshatid at 12, which is minus seven, although I think most people expected that they were going to do even worse. So they've rebounded or stabilized a little bit. By Yehudi at 12, which is plus one. And a lot of people had thought that there was a time that they were polling at 17 seats or so. Kulanu, Moshe Kahlon's new party, at nine seats. Shas at nine seats, which is minus two, which is better than they had been doing with the split with El Yishai and Aryeh Deri. Uh, United Torah Judaism, the Gimel Party, at six seats, which is minus one. And there had been conventional wisdom. They were going to go to eight seats instead of back. Now, of course, this polling is, you know, this is the Globes poll. You never know. There's different polls all over the place. But this is the last one that I've seen. Uh, Yisrael Beitano at six seats, which is seven fewer. That was actually expected. They were going to do a little bit worse, but not that much worse. Uh, Meretz at five seats, which is minus one, and Yachad, which is Eli Yishai's party, at uh, four seats. So if this holds, this will be a big surprise to a lot of people out there. Of course, the only poll that counts is the one on Election Day. And if you're listening to this show and you're in Israel, you certainly should make sure absolutely to go out and vote. Much higher voter participation in Israel that we have than we have, unfortunately, here in the United States, and to certainly lament that. But the election season has been quite colorful. Uh, we haven't covered it enough because there's just no way to cover it enough. Israeli politics is so incredible. But wouldn't it be amazing if, after all this fanfare, after all this controversy, after everything that happened with Netanyahu's speech and coming to the U.S. and the relationship with Obama, et cetera, et cetera, that after all that, it would be a negative, a net negative in the end for Likud and Netanyahu, and they would end up, and he would end up not forming a government. Now, of course, just keep in mind, this does not mean that the Netanyahu will not be able to form a government, or the Herzog will not be able to form a government. It all depends on ultimately what the right and the left, and the big bogey there, of course, the Arab parties who said they would not participate in any government. And the last thought is that we don't really know what's going to happen. But what we did happen is that this race in Israel really focused the attention of the presidential race in 2016 on foreign policy. No question about it. That's what the Republicans are talking about. That's what everybody's talking about. They're talking about foreign policy. They're talking about Iran. They're talking about the Middle East in a way that they weren't beforehand. So for that, that should certainly be encouraging for us out there who care so much about foreign policy this race has really focused us on that foreign policy. That's it for this week. Stay tuned for Charlie Burnett, an hour of Jewish soul, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.